Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Father, as we open the pages of history and the pages of your word, Lord, you have so much to teach us, and we are so inspired by those who have gone before us. Lord, I ask now for your presence here and for your Holy Spirit, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you know, I love history, and uh, if you were here in Sabbath school this morning, you know I love history, (laughs) but uh, I want to share with you today his story in the mountains. And those mountains are right here, the mountains that we call home, right here in eastern Kentucky and eastern Tennessee. You know, when uh, America was first discovered along the east coast by the uh, explorers, the great explorers who came out on these big ships across the ocean, there, there was this common belief that North America was very small. There, there was this little strip of land along the East Coast, and I am sorry, I am not an artist, but I also like illustrations, so you just have to put up with me. But this is the East Coast, okay? Uh, the East Coast, uh, of course, you know, you've got Maine up here, and you've got, you know, all the way down to Florida down here, right? And uh, along this East Coast, there is a, a mountain range, right? And we know that as the Appalachian Mountains, or the Appalachian Mountains, as they call them here. And uh, so the common belief by these uh, uh, explorers who came out on these ships uh, was that when you get to land, you go a little ways, there's a mountain range, and on the other side of those mountains is the ocean. And if we can get over the top of those mountains, we can sail very easily, and we won't have to go all the way down, clear down past the southern tip of South America, all the way to get to wherever the other side is. And so, uh, this was the common belief for actually many years. Uh, And the reason it stayed the common belief is because this mountain range was fairly impassable, um, especially since they had started on the northern side, um, and even mid-southern range, uh, every time someone came to those mountains, well, they didn't have airplanes back then. You know, they didn't have cars back then. The, there wasn't uh, huge supplies of dynamite. And uh, to get over those mountains meant a very, very, very difficult climb, either on foot or with a donkey that didn't want to go the whole way. And uh, many uh, explorations were sent out, and they reached the foothills. But when they got to the biggest mountains, they turned around and came back home. John Smith himself, we know a little bit about him, right? Uh, There at Jamestown, Uh, John Smith himself tried to climb the mountains. And uh, what happened to him? Well, we know the whole story with... um, uh, Pocahontas and the Indian chief and a few other things uh, that he was captured on his way to try to find the mountains in the first place um, and let alone get over them and he never made it. Others tried and they came back so worn out and disappointed they said those mountains are impossible. We can't cross them. And you know 
I have a feeling that God had a reason in this. A reason that they could not cross them. Because while during these explorations they're trying to cross the mountains, they are building cities along the coast. And these cities, uh, as we know, had the best access to the ships, which had the best access to supplies. And uh, God built this wall, this formidable wall, to allow the birth of the United States to happen right along the coast. And as we see later on in history, uh, there was a purpose in that as well. There was finally a German man by the name of John Lettered, who said, I am going to scale those mountains. <laughs> These mountains are not going to beat me. And so he took a, a group of men with him and supplies and mules and everything else. It took him 10 days of grueling travel to get from the coast to the base of the mountains. And, I mean, we're talking, you know, we think of it today as like a very short little drive you know, comparatively, but, uh, we're talking like there was no roads. Uh, it's all thick wooded forests. Uh, it's, uh, even though they weren't the mountains, they were still hills and it was not easy travel. So after very grueling 10 days, he finally got to the Blue Mountain Ridge. And it took him a full day of very toilsome climbing to get to the top of the Blue Mountain Ridge. And guess what he saw at the top? He saw a sea. A sea of mountains. <laughs> he saw mountain peak after mountain peak after mountain peak and came back extremely disappointed. But um, the... When he looked over the sea of mountains, he saw a few areas that had some fog in them. Yeah, right? That, that's common if you, in the Blue Ridge area, in the Smoky Mountains, right? That's the reason they're called Smoky. And when he saw those little pockets of fog, he thought, well, maybe, just maybe, that's water, and the ocean isn't that far out of my... Maybe on the other side of that sea of mountains, there's still an ocean. Well, he was right. It was just a long ways further, right? <laughs> so as uh, he discovered the Sea of Mountains and a number of other explorers finally scaled to the top of this mountain and discovered the Sea of Mountains, uh, their their conquest for finding an ocean on the other side kind of dissipated a little bit, and they continued to fill up the colonies along this ocean. Now, as they were doing this, there was another group of people who were also inhabiting this virgin soil that of North America. And guess who they were? Well, the Indians lived here already. And forgive my use of Indians because we actually, they're First Nation people now. Are, uh, there, there's all kinds of technical terms. I'm not going to try to be political here. I'm not talking about the people of India. We're talking about the Native Americans or the people that were here first, right? They all lived in this whole area, right? Um, both on this side and this side of the mountains. And as the colonies kind of uh, encroached on the coastal land, they kind of moved a little further into the mountains and a little further out west. But there was another group of people that also started moving, and they came from this direction. 
And they start inhabiting along this side of the mountains and in the mountains. Who are they? The French. They were coming down from Canada, right? Um, and they also began settling in this area. Like I said, more so in the mountains and on this side of the mountains and a little bit on the other side, but more in this area. But uh, because of difficulty to get to the ocean, their their settlements were a little bit more scattered, a little fewer and further between. And then became the first real war that was fought on the soil. And that was what is known as the French and Indian War, right? And that was a battle between the British and the colonies, right? The British colonies at the time. And the French, who had enlisted the Indians on their side to fight the British. And uh, the amazing thing is, and I find this fascinating, you know, we, we read these stories in history, but we don't always put the puzzle together. But the reason the British were able to win that war, and I believe God had his hand in this, was because the British had access to all the supplies because their colonies were based along the coast. And the French on this side had very little access to supplies, and it was very difficult for them to continue uh, fighting, and they lost the war. The French, of course, ended up settling in Canada, and that's why we have French Canada today. But I want to look at it from a religious perspective. What was the main religion of those French that were settling in this area? Catholic, right? And that's pretty much what the country of Canada is as a nation, right? What was the primary uh, religion of the British? Protestant, right? Protestant. And God in his mercy put this wall of mountains so that the Protestants would have an edge and be able to basically preserve the United States as a Protestant nation. Very fascinating when you think of that. I'd never put the uh, connection together until very recently. So the stage was set for the United States to become a place of freedom of religion, a Protestant nation offering freedom of religion. Now we know that the freedom of religion didn't happen immediately, but in God's time, step by step, it became what we have today with a freedom to worship. There were people who began settling in these mountains. As time went on, uh, they started sending explorers into the mountains, right? And guess who one of those famous explorers was? Daniel Boone, right? <laughs> we all know Daniel Boone. And one of the things that Daniel Boone was absolutely famous for was he discovered a hole in the mountains. Well, they call it a gap, okay? But it, basically, it was a hole in the mountains, right? There was in this formidable wall a gap that they could put a wagon through. And it was called, uh, someone said it, say it louder, the Cumberland Gap. That's not very far from here, is it? The Cumberland Gap was this gap, and uh, fascinating, the first road that went through Cumberland Gap, guess what the name of it was, does anyone know? It was called Object Lesson Road. 
<laughs> any guesses as to how it got its name? <laughs> Object Lesson Road. Um, and so once he found that gap, he began exploring all the area of Kentucky and Tennessee and uh, the mountainous regions along this area. And uh, settlers began pouring in. And of course, the first places they poured in was the fertile valleys, right? Uh, you've got, and the, the fertile plain regions, you've got the bluegrass area that was very quickly settled. Um, you've got the Tennessee Valley that was very quickly settled because of its fertile land and a perfect place for um, farming and for crops and for livestock and just um, uh, really easy to build roads in and to make access to the coast to continue to get supplies. And then you have the mountain region, right? The mountains of East Tennessee and Eastern Kentucky, the mountains of then it was Virginia. Now we know it as West Virginia. And uh, the people who settled in those mountain, this mountain region here, you have a lot of Scotch-Irish, you have a fair bit of German, and uh, you have a few others mixed in. Uh, the Scotch-Irish were a mix, uh, but a large part of them were persecuted Protestants from Ireland and Scotland who moved out over here to find freedom. So you have roots from the Huguenots, um, and uh, you have roots from the Covenanters, and you have roots from uh, a wide variety, and of course... Most of those immigrants who came in were Presbyterian, uh, Presbyterian uh, Protestants who settled in this area. And uh, then, of course, you had a few of the others, too, right? You had some of the outlaws who just didn't want anybody to bother them, who also settled in the mountains because they didn't want anyone to bother them. But uh, <laughs> we won't go into that part of it. So uh, <laughs> The interesting thing is living in the woods, in the mountains here, was very difficult. Uh, it was not easy. Uh, you were very secluded. You didn't have uh, really a lot of outside supplies coming in. You pretty much had to be sustained off the land that you lived on. Uh, there was wild animals, and there were the Indians um, who didn't like people settling in their land, and so... Uh, you had to basically protect your own home and your own family. There were two men that became famous in this area. One was a man by the name of John Severe. Uh, probably the town of Sevierville came after him, right? John Severe was famous in Tennessee uh, for being a famous, um, uh, a fierce protector of the settlements from the Indian raids. And uh, he was known by both the Indians and the white people, uh, by the Indians as both a fierce fighter, but if you made peace with him, he always kept his word. And by the whites as their best protector in any time of emergency. Um, he was known as never losing a battle. Then there was a man in Kentucky by the name of Isaac Shelby. And Isaac Shelby basically had the same reputation in Kentucky as John Sevier had in Tennessee. Uh, and later on, when uh, Tennessee and Kentucky became states, guess who the very first governors were? Uh, <laughs> Isaac Shelby was the first governor of the state of Kentucky, and John Sevier was the first governor of Tennessee. 
being secluded in the woods kept them safe during the American Revolution, when uh, the United States decided to become the United States and to fight for freedom from the British. And uh, so they really didn't have to do much. They were secluded in the woods. They were they weren't on the forefront of the coast where all the battles were being fought. They had relative peace. But they were strong believers in God and their nation. And they were there to help their country. Uh, during the American Revolution, the British for a time were making good headway conquering the coast uh, of what was in the, the colonies in the early United States. They, uh, Cornwallis took over all of South Carolina and Georgia. And their next step after conquering South Carolina and Georgia and most of the coast, their next step was to move over the mountains and conquer inland and get all the southern part of the United States. But the mountains were in their way. So they said, we are going to talk to the Indians who live in the mountains. So they talked to the Cherokee. And the Cherokee, of course, were upset about these people that were in their area. And so the Cherokee said, we will help you, British. We are your allies. And uh, so the British began very uh, secretly providing weapons to the Cherokee who were living in East Tennessee. And they set a date for a little ways in advance, because it would take a little while for the Cherokee to distribute all the ammunition to all the Cherokees along the whole mountain region. But they said, on one day, we want all of you Cherokees to kill everybody in the mountains on the same day. And then we'll take over. We'll we'll move in right behind you and take over the area. So the date was set. The money had been exchanged. The ammunition and supplies had all been stored up. And they were just waiting for the signal. But God once again had his hand. If that had happened, there's absolutely no way that the United States would ever exist. That one thing would have conquered all of the South to the British. And the United States would not have had enough people left to fight the Revolutionary War. But God was watching out. There was one Indian chief, and his name was uh, Chief Dragon Canoe. And he didn't like the fact that all this ammunition was sitting here in the storehouse doing nothing. And everybody's just sitting around on their hands. So he decided to do a little pre-raiding using some of that ammunition that was given them by the British. And uh, word of his idea got to a man by the name of James Robertson, who was commissioner of Indian affairs in North Carolina. He lived in a Cherokee town. He heard the news. He warned the settlements, and they were on guard for this first raid. And the raid didn't get very far. They were prepared. Well, when they when this happened, the rest of the word leaked out that the British had made an alliance with the Cherokees. And so everybody was on guard. And uh, the Cherokees began trying to uh, uh, fight. And John Sevier and uh, Isaac Shelby were there with their armies. 
and they didn't get anywhere. And the whole British plan was thwarted. Around the same time that they discovered this terrible plot by the British to annihilate all the people in the mountains, uh, Isaac Shelby received a letter from another general, a British general, by the name of General Ferguson. He had, uh, General Ferguson had tried to mountains to recruit people to the British army, hoping that maybe some of these mountain men would join his army and defeat the Americans. And uh, he met up with a band of uh, mountain men, 400 of them, led by Shelby himself, and didn't get very far in his idea of trying to uh, recruit help. He was so upset, he wrote this letter to to Isaac Shelby and said, unless you stop fighting the British, I am going to come over the mountains and burn you out. Well, Isaac Shelby didn't like that idea very well. And so he went over to uh, uh, John Severe and uh, they called for reinforcements. They said, we have to act or else we are going to lose our lives and our liberty and our religion and our everything else that we hold dear here in America. So they called for help from all their neighbors. So 400 men of the mountains from the West Virginia area came down. Everyone from East Tennessee came. So they actually had to draw lots as to who was going to stay and protect the settlements and who was going to actually go. Uh, They had a huge group of people from Eastern Kentucky mountains. And when they all got together, they had over 1,500 men, mountain men. These 1,500 men began uh, their march, but just before they did, their Presbyterian minister prayed for them. His name was um, Minister Parson Doak. He prayed, and then they went. And they went so fast that they left 600 men along the way. (laughs) Only 900 men were still with them when they actually caught up to Ferguson. And Ferguson heard they were coming, and he got scared. And uh, he went to a little hill and dug himself in a hill that we know as King's Mountain. And uh, these 900 men surrounded King's Mountain. And by a total miracle from God, completely conquered Fergus's army. And that one battle of King's Mountain completely turned the tide of the American Revolution. And from that point on, uh, America won the wars. Now, there were still still small battles they fought, but the tide of the war itself turned because of 1,500 mountain men who were willing to risk everything for God. We owe a lot to the men of the mountains. You know, uh, the British didn't uh, like them too well. They had a... They called them... The British had a name for these mountain men. They called them strange... Long-haired, buckskin-shirted men who had unerring aim on their rifles. (laughs) That was the mountain men. But you know, there were other mountain men that helped in the American Revolution as well. Uh, Mountain men under a man by the name of George Rogers Clark battled the British in Indiana and Illinois and conquered that for the American nation. They walked 200 miles during the spring floods, wading rivers all the way up to their chin to surprise the British and clear them out of Indiana and Illinois. 
Yes, God used those mountain men to preserve our nation. But not just in the Revolutionary War, in the Civil War as well. Uh, Once again, it was the mountain families who had a huge impact in the Civil War. Uh, 75,000 men from Kentucky fought in the Union Army. 50,000 fought from the state of Tennessee, and 35,000 was from the mountains of East Tennessee. 37,000 from the mountains of West Virginia. But that's just the men. I didn't talk about the women. (laughs) The women of the mountains were just as firm as the men of the mountains. True to duty, willing to work, willing to brave hardships, willing to lose their men. Countless uh, mountain women lost husbands, children in the war. The women were the ones who stayed there at the homes, running the house in the mountains, fighting the wild animals, keeping the gardens going, keeping their children alive, and sometimes fleeing for their lives when guerrillas in the Civil War would come and burn their homes and steal everything they had. The women were the ones who served as scouts and guides and couriers when the men were unable to do it. We tell tales about Paul Revere during the American Revolution who rode 12 miles in the middle of the night to warn the Minuteman. But we don't mention Mary Love, who rode 35 miles in the middle of winter to deliver a message from General Grant to the army in Knoxville, Tennessee. We don't talk about little John Brown's mother, who uh, passed who piloted her little boy past all the hostile pickets so that he could take a message to General Burnside. If it hadn't been for the families of these mountains, not just the men, the families of these mountains, the South would have won. But the mountain families opposed slavery. They opposed state supremacy. They furnished so many soldiers to the Union Army, and they protected the mountains, which the mountain region split the South in two. And supplies could not get from one part of the southern states to the other part of the southern states because they had to cross the mountains, and the mountain families would not let them by. We owe a debt of gratitude to those mountain families for our freedom our country, and for a courageous example of standing for the right. You know, I find it so amazing. God used a relatively small group of people. They were unpopular. They were little known to this day, still little known. They were little understood. That hasn't changed either. They came uh, to the United States to escape persecution. They were willing to stand for the right. And they helped save our nation so that God's word could multiply. You know, as I think about that little group, the families of the mountains, the people 
who lived where we call home today. It reminds me of another little group. Another little group who is also unpopular, little known, little understood, who are willing to stand for the right, who God wants to use to spread his word and let it multiply. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. If you actually read, and if we had time, I could, but if we actually read the entire book of Hebrews 11, we see a lot of people who fit that description, don't we? People who were small in number all throughout history, from the time of Cain and Abel, through Moses, through uh, Rahab, through Ruth, through... Uh, there's so many listed in the chapter of Hebrews 11. People who were unpopular, little known, little understood, who are willing to stand for the right, who helped God's word to multiply by faith. And then we come to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. And it says, therefore, we also. That's you. That's me. Seeing that we are surrounded with so great a cloud of witnesses, all of these who have gone before us, all of these people who have stood for the right, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And how can we do this? By looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who himself was little known, unpopular, little understood, willing to stand for the right, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Do you want to be one of those people? Is God calling you to stand. You know, it's not a popular thing to do. If we look at Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus himself tells us, he says, enter in by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many go in it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Little known, little understood, a small group of people who are willing to stand and walk through that narrow gate. And what is God's commission to us? Look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, The grace of God that brings salvation has been given to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. How can we do this? By looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself his own special people, zealous for good works. 
And lastly, Jesus himself tells us once again in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Familiar passage to all of you. You probably have it memorized. But he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Friends, God is calling you to stand like the men and women of the mountains. May you be the next generation of the small group of people, the men and the mountains, the women of the mountains, the families of the mountains, who are willing to stand for the right, though the heavens fall, and that we may spread God's message and his word throughout the world. Father, this is our prayer. Lord, we know you have a place for us, that you love us, that you think of us, and that you have a work for us. And Lord, we want to be your children. We want to be your servants. We answer your call today. We ask that you will take us and use us little as we are to be able to spread your message to those around us. We thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen.